Well, greetings in the Master's name. The King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Where do we find those words? Anybody give me a reference or a book? <laughs> Okay, yeah, First Timothy one seventeen. Okay, thank you. All earthly empires crumble. We looked at what well, we referred to Daniel two last Sunday. Talks about the Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Darius and King Esther's time, the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years old. And then the Roman Empire. And it says, Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, talking about the Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. I'll quiz you a little more. Um, what did Jesus say about to his disciples about the power of his kingdom? And he used the word church. Okay, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay? What did Jesus say to Pilate about the nature of his kingdom? It's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. And what verse tells us that we're a part of his kingdom now? Okay, probably probably different references. I'm thinking of the one in Colossians 1.13 who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And one more. What verse tells us about our citizenship? Yes, Philippians 3.20. For our conversation is in heaven. And the word conversation there, that Greek word, that's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It, it refers to a community or abstractly citizenship. And so a lot of translations actually translate it citizenship. Uh, there is another similar word. I, was, I got to thinking a little bit or looking at that. The only place that word is used, but there's another very similar word that's used in... Uh, Acts 23.1, Philippians 1.27, and it's, uh, it's another form of the root word. It means to live or behave as a citizen. 
where Paul said, actually, it's translated conscience. I've lived in all good conscience. Philippians 1.27 says, only let your conversation, your manner of life, be as it becometh the gospel. Oh, no, I wanted one more verse yet. What verse gives us our duty as citizens in this community, this polity, this kingdom that we're in? Yeah, yeah, you got that one. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ that be you reconciled to God. As I said, that's, that's, we are ambassadors from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of this world. And, we, and our message, our duty, our, what we're trying to get across is, is reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Okay, now let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Again, we'll look at a number of verses to talk about the kingdom. Matthew 4, verse 23. Uh, Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now let's turn to Matthew 9. Verse 35. This is, a, this is not the same preaching tour. This is another one. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 4. And I think this was yet another occasion. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Uh, this was, uh, evidently it was uh, on the Sabbath because earlier in the chapter, Jesus healed the man in the synagogue, cast out the unclean spirit, and then he healed Simon, Peter's mother-in-law, and then it says at evening they brought many people to him. You see, their Sabbath was from, well, anyway, it, it, it ended in the evening. So after, after the Sabbath was over, they brought the people for Jesus to heal them. And so he did. And then the next day he went out to a solitary place, but they came out to him. And so this is then what he said. They said, we want you to stay with us. And in verse 43, he said unto them, I must preach the gospel of the, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. So that his message there, let's go to, in other words, the heart of his message. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 1. Now we don't know. Well, these verses don't tell us directly other places we know. I mean, like the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of God's kingdom. So we, we know some of the content, but this just says he was preaching the kingdom. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And then if we go to chapter 16, verse 16, 
where Jesus said, The law and the prophets were until John, referring to John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Then the kingdom of God starts the New Covenant, the New Testament. And it says, Every man presseth into it. And uh, last Sunday again, we referred to what Jesus told Nicodemus, that except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Also, where Jesus told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Now, let's turn back to Luke 9. So all those passages show Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 9. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. That was the twelve. Now let's go to chapter 10, the next chapter. Now here it's the 70. We know the names of the twelve disciples. We don't know the names of these 70. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Now go down to verse 9. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. And in the, um, in the parallel passage in Matthew, I'll just turn to that myself. It says, As ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So just pointing out, they're sort of synonymous. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. In fact, uh, okay, I'll, I'll just turn to this one too. If you're writing down references, it's Matthew 19, uh, 23 and 24, I believe. Um then said Jesus unto disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter to the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So in 23 he says kingdom of heaven, 24 he says kingdom of God. Same, same passage, same teaching, same concept. Okay, let's turn to Matthew 24, 14. Now this is towards the end of the very, very near end of Jesus' ministry. And so he's telling his disciples, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. The gospel of the kingdom is to be preached. Okay, Acts chapter 1. Now we'll look in Acts for a little bit, various places in Acts. But the very first verses, um, Luke, writing to his acquaintance, evidently Theophilus the Greek, he'd written the Gospel of Luke that talked about, in the first verse he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now notice verse 3. To whom... 
Also, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The forty days that Jesus spent with his disciples after the resurrection, he spent talking to them about the kingdom of God. So now, how did it affect them and their message? Well, let's look at chapter 8, verse 12. Here Philip is preaching in Samaria. Acts 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, preaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, the Jews needed to accept Christ. Okay, chapter 19, verse 8. So Paul was preaching in the synagogue. It says he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then it goes on to say that uh, the, he faced resistance there, and so he he uh, taught for two years in um, I think it was close to the synagogue, but he was teaching concerning the kingdom of God. In fact, turn uh, chapter twenty. Verse 25, this is when he's, he's um, taking his departure from the elders at Ephesus. And he says, And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. And at the end of the book, chapter 28, at the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 23, Paul is in Rome. He he's there on a because he appealed to Caesar. Uh, we understand or think that after this he was released for a while, and then later on was arrested under Nero and uh, and killed. But here, while he was here at this time, it says in verse twenty three, when they, uh, he had set up a time to talk to the Jews in Rome, the Jewish leaders, and when they appointed him a time, there came to him. There came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And then look at the last verse, two verses of the book. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, while he was a prisoner there, he had his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So, we saw yet we saw last Sunday all the references to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And here we see this Sunday we see Jesus teaching it. We see the disciples teaching it. What is the kingdom? What is a kingdom? A kingdom is a society of people. Of course, they have a ruler. But that's what I want to think about. A kingdom is a society of people. And God has always wanted a people. And what we're contrasting here is the people versus an individual. 
God always wanted a people for himself, not just individuals. He told Abraham, he said, I will make of thee a great nation. And if we uh, actually, we should probably turn to that. Exodus 19 is just before the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 is preparing people to receive the law, the Ten Commandments. And it says in verses 5 and 6, now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Similar thought over in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto him above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So the emphasis the, that we're making here is the group, the people, the society, not just individuals. And, and maybe I'll explain a little more about that, uh, why that emphasis but God in the Old Testament, he wanted a people who, who would demonstrate what a nation looked like whose God was the Lord and how those people would live. And we have in the New Testament, it's the church. But in 2 Corinthians 6.16, and actually it's quoting some from uh, the Old Testament. Quoting, I think it's quoting uh, Leviticus perhaps. But it says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's not talking to a single individual. He says, I will dwell in them. Ye are, that, that we are his temple. We think of ourselves individually as our temple, and I think that's right. That in John, uh, is it 14? Where Jesus said, of course, there again, he's talking to a group. But he says, you know, I'll come and live, live in you. But the, the, the church is also the temple. It's not just us as individuals. Uh, just, uh, in fact, I'll just read a couple of these verses from the Old Testament. Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And we have that in Second uh, Peter. Second Peter, I think it's second. Yeah, it's, no, it's First Peter. First Peter 2, 9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're supposed to be doing that corporately. Not just individually, we're supposed to be doing it corporately. The um, American Standard Version for 1 Peter 2.9 says, Ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may show forth the excellencies of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as a body, we're supposed to be demonstrating the excellencies of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, That ye would walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. But again, back to 2 Corinthians 6, 6, 16. They shall be my people. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a society of people who show the character of God. 
They're, they're, they're demonstrating to the world what it would look like if everybody obeyed the king. Now, I may have read this before, and it's, it sounds almost too good to be true. I haven't been able to verify it. I read it in the heartbeat of the remnant years ago. All things are possible. I guess it's possible. I mean, the power of the gospel. I believe in the power of the gospel. But it's, it sounds almost too good to be true. But this is the account. The, the title is The Village That Lived by the Bible. It was early in 1945 when as a war correspondent in Okinawa, I first came upon Shimabuku, the strangest and most inspiring community I ever saw. Huddled beneath its groves of banyan and twisted pine trees, this remote village of some 1,000 souls was in the path of the American advance. If you know a little bit about history, the battle for Okinawa was pretty fierce. Was in the path of the American advance and so received a severe shelling. But when an advance patrol swept up to the village compound, the GIs stopped dead in their tracks. Barring their way were two little old men. They bowed low and began to speak. The battle-hardened sergeant, wary of tricks, held up his hand, summoned an interpreter. The interpreter shook his head. I don't get it. Seems we're being welcomed as fellow Christians. One says he's the mayor of the village, the other's the schoolmaster. That's a Bible the older one has in his hand. Guided by the two old men, I won't try to say their names, the mayor and the schoolmaster, we cautiously toured the compound. Now this is the account of the war correspondent. We had seen other Okinawan villages uniformly down at the hills and despairing. By contrast, this one showing like a diamond in a dung heap. Everywhere we were greeted by smiles and dignified bows. Proudly, the two old men showed us their spotless homes, their terrace fields, fertile and neat, their storehouses and granaries, their prized sugar meal. Gravely, the old men talked on. And the interpreter said, They've met only one American before, long ago. Because he was a Christian, they assume we are too, though they can't quite understand why we came in shooting. Piecemeal, the incredible story came out. Thirty years before, an American missionary on his way to Japan had paused at Shimabuku. He had stayed only long enough to make a pair of converts, these same two men, teach them a couple of hymns, leave them a Japanese translation of the Bible, and exhort them to live by it. They had had no contact with any Christian since. Yet during those 30 years, guided by the Bible, they had managed to create a Christian democracy at its purest. How had it happened? Picking their way through the Bible, the two converts had found not only an inspiring person on whom to pattern their life, but sound precepts on which to base their society. They had adopted the Ten Commandments as Shemabuku's legal code, the Sermon on the Mount as their guide to social conduct. In Kino's school, the Bible was the chief literature. It was read daily by all students, and major passages were memorized. In Nakamura's, that's these two men's names, village government, the precepts of the Bible were law. Nurtured on this book, a whole generation of Shemabukans had drawn from it their ideas of human dignity and the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. The result was plain to see. Shimabuku, for years, had had no jail, no brothel, no drunkenness, no divorce. There was a high level of health and happiness. 
Next day, the tide of battle swept us on. But a few days later, during a lull, I requisitioned a jeep and, speak, and a speaking driver and went by to Shimabuku. Over the winding roads outside the village, huge truck convoys and endless lines of American troops moved dustily behind them lumbered armored tanks, heavier, heavier artillery. But inside, Shimabuku was an oasis of serenity. Once again, I strolled through the quiet village streets, soaking up Shimabuku's calm. There was a sound of singing. We followed it and came to Nakamura's house, where a curious religious service was underway. Having no knowledge of churchly forms or ritual, the Shimabukans had developed their own. There was much Bible reading by Kina, repeated in sing-song fashion by the worshipers. Then came hymn singing, the tunes of the two hymns the missionary had taught, Ferris Lord Jesus and all hail the power of Jesus' name had naturally suffered some changes, but they were recognizable. Swept up in the power of all hail the power, we joined in. After many prayers voiced spontaneously by people in the crowd, there was a discussion of community problems. With each question, Kena turned quickly to some Bible passage to find the answer. The book's imitation leather cover was cracked and worn, its pages stained and dog-eared from 30 years' constant use. Kena held it with the reverent care one would use in handling the original Magna Carta. The service over, we waited as the crowd moved out, and my driver whispered hoarsely, So this is what comes out of only a Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus. Then with a glance at a shell hole, he murmured, Maybe we're using the wrong kind of weapons. Time had dimmed the Shemabukan's memory of the missionary. Neither Kena nor Nakamura could recall his name. They did remember his parting statement. As expressed by Nakamura, it was, Study this book well. It will give you strong faith. And when faith is strong, everything is strong. So a society that ordered themselves by the Bible. I was sort of inspired or, or got my thinking going on this subject by listening to a, 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 one of the Anabaptist perspectives um, um, presentations when they were interviewing John D. Martin and on the kingdom of God. That's his favorite subject. And uh, he said, you know, growing up, he sort of got the impression that the, the whole gospel is about getting us ready for heaven getting us ready to go to heaven. But he said the emphasis in the gospel is more like getting heaven to earth. Demonstrating on demonstrating heaven on earth, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be credible, people living in repentance. And he said the billboard calls he gets, um, it's often a question, or at least sometimes a question, what's the difference between evangelicals and what you believe? And he says his standard answer is the gospel you hear is focused on getting people to heaven. And out of baptism, if really understood, is about getting heaven to earth. And he said, you know, deep in our hearts, people carry that, that those ideals that society should have, a society where there's equity, where things are shared. And there's been some attempts over the centuries to establish utopias, and they all fail. They all fail because of the inherent selfishness in human nature. And only Jesus can can um, get rid of that selfishness in our hearts. Um, but, um, and here again, some things that I 
wrote down from what John was saying, and I think it's right. He said Jesus didn't really focus so much on getting people to heaven. He focused on getting heaven to earth. He said, there too am I sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So what if this gospel was preached to the whole world like Jesus asked for it to be? What if when the gospel went to Russia a thousand years ago, if you read the Russian history, uh, what if they would have preached that it's wrong to kill, that it's wrong to accumulate wealth for yourself? Would Marxism had any appeal to them if they had heard that gospel? He went on to say, the problem is the gospel has often been taken without most of the teachings. When the gospel has been presented, it's often been presented without most of the teachings. In conservative Protestant churches, one can be divorced and remarried, can swear oaths, can go to war and kill. You can pretty well disobey all the kingdom teachings because they don't think the kingdom is now. They think it's future. Their subject is getting to heaven. So where the gospel goes without the gospel to the kingdom, especially the peaceable kingdom, then when war breaks out, those converts take up weapons and they kill each other. And I wasn't aware of this, but he mentioned it, that in Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsis were both Christian tribes. Rwanda was considered one of the most Christian nations on the earth, Christian in quotes. And I don't quite understand it. I, I, I was reading a little bit on that history of that civil war. About a million people killed. It was genocide. Tutus and the Hutsis trying to do away with each other totally. Just wipe each other out. But it was more the... It was more the... Um, well, I forget which one was which. But anyway... There's no... There was no... No semblance. No particle of, of uh, adherence to the teachings of Christ and all that. But it's not just that. I mean, you go back in history. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the conquest of Latin America, slavery, wars to end slavery, all done by Christians, people who call themselves Christians. The, uh, in my lifetime, maybe some years too, Ireland, it was Catholics and Protestants. Well, you go back further, a lot of the English wars were religious wars. People supposedly huh? supposedly Christian? Where's the gospel of the kingdom? John said in his, when he was teaching high school, he, he would ask his students, why are you a Christian? And standard answers were, so I don't go to hell, so I go to heaven. And he said he never heard anybody say, I'm a Christian because I want to be a part of God's kingdom and express that here on earth. And that's why I ask you all to write down here sometime back, why are you a Christian? I wanted to see what you would say.
And, and there was, I, I was, uh, I was kind of encouraged by your answers. There, there was some of the idea, you know, it's all good heaven and so on. But there was a good bit of, um, it wasn't anybody expressly said that uh, because I want to be a part of God's kingdom and a part of the church and ex express the, the kingdom of God here on earth. Nobody said that uh, explicitly. But there, there were expressions of, um, well, that Jesus gives peace, that his, he gives meaning and fulfillment to life. They want to live that out. There were expressions like that, and I appreciated it. So John said in that talk, he said, this idea of the kingdom of God, and that we're to live that out, we're to show what it looks like when God rules a, a society of people. He said it revolutionizes people's concept of the church. The church is the apple of God's eye. We're to see that. We pour, we pour our whole heart into making the church the spotless church that God wants it to be. It's a society that demonstrates the ideals, what the world would look like if everybody was obeying the king. It's a beautiful society where marriage is permanent. People are honest. They don't commit violence. They're meek people. They're gentle and kind. That's this kingdom of God. That's this society of people. That's the church. And it's to, it, the, the church is to establish little outposts all over the world so that everybody can see what this ideal looks like, this, this lost ideal. And we're to demonstrate that kingdom wherever we go. And he went on to say, if we would teach this gospel, People more likely have a real passion and love for the church, and they think twice before creating a problem. They work hard at keeping people reconciled. So often the way it is, the way people treat church, disagree with something, you go off, start something else, get up a faction, split the church. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We often think about our inheritance, and he talks about that in verse 11. Uh, we have obtained inheritance. Verse 14, uh, the earnest of our inheritance. But here it says, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the same. The church is God's inheritance. It's a glory to him. And then go to chapter 3. Verse 20 and 21. Now we often, I think, quote or refer to or appreciate uh, and maybe have memorized verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. It's to him be glory. All that, that his his working exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, it's to be to his glory in the church. 
Well, having said all this about the kingdom of God, and we need that emphasis that the kingdom of God is now. We're in that kingdom. And God has a calling for us to, to demonstrate. I've, I've often thought of this or from time to time think of this. You look at the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel, and we think it was a pretty miserable failure as far as trying to show the world what a nation would look like. I mean, all the idolatry and all the straying that they did and so on. And, but yet, God was ruling in history and he, Jesus came in the fullness of time. So, so God has his plan. He's going to work it out. But then I've thought, if you look at the, okay, so Abraham, yeah, there was about 2,000 years uh, from the call of Abraham till Christ, the Old Covenant, the people of God in the Old Testament. Okay, from Jesus till now has been another 2,000 years, and that's the church. And has the church done much, church hasn't done a much better job of demonstrating God's rule among a people than what the Old Testament nation of Israel did. But, and, and I was thinking that, you know, when we, we think about Protestantism and all the failures of Protestantism and not teaching the Sermon on the Mount, so, yeah, you know, that's not us. You know, we teach the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we teach peace. We teach not to kill and so on. We teach permanence of marriage. We teach all that. But what's our record when it comes to how we treat the church? Our attitude toward the church. So we got we got some room to grow there. Anyway, I wanted to say here in closing that there is a future kingdom. But it's not just future. You know, I think I've said before the the uh, salvation, salvation past, we're freed from the penalty of sin. Salvation present, we're freed from the power of sin. Salvation future, we're freed from the from the presence of sin. And so, in the kingdom, there's the present kingdom, there's the future kingdom, but there is the kingdom now. But as far as the future kingdom, just well, let's see, how does Peter say it? Uh, uh, yeah, Peter Peter talks about all these things we're to add to ourselves, to, to our behavior, our, our way of life. And he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's begun now. But it goes on and on. It's everlasting. And then in the, in, at, at the end of Revelation, toward the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, 1 to 3, and I'll just um, close with, uh, well, I've got uh, another verse or two yet, but after this. But it says in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And so I, I see that as future. But what is really interesting in that verse, it says, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. 
it doesn't say we will dwell with him. It says he will dwell with us. Think about that. Well, Peter said at the end of 2 Peter, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. 